Okay, welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex. Once again, with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And uh, we're going to be ranting this evening about the Hawaii Congress member and Democratic candidate Tulsi Gabbard and how she is an exemplar of a uh, phenomenon that I call hippie fascism. Now, you would think that that's an oxymoron, given that hippies are historically associated with peace and love and all that stuff. Unfortunately, it isn't that much of an oxymoron, as we shall see. And, you know, the fact that figures like Tulsi Gabbard, who are actually embracing fascism, and this is not hyperbole, as I shall amply demonstrate over the course of this podcast, who embrace fascism, and yet paint it in this, um, you know, sort of hippie, peacenik guise is particularly noxious and repugnant. And if you are getting taken in by Tulsi Gabbard's lefty peacenik rhetoric, well, you really need to uh, get yourself more informed and to think it through a little bit more. So I'm going to be popping the Tulsi bubble tonight. This is all... uh, based on a piece which I've got on the website of Freedom Leaf, a um, cannabis-themed publication, as you might surmise from the name. Cannabis uh, liberation definitely being an issue which is close to my heart, as are issues of war and peace. Gabbard has actually been very progressive on the cannabis question, which is why a lot of people who support the liberation of the cannabis plant have come to support her candidacy, and why it uh, bears scrutiny among that readership. So uh, I was given an assignment to uh, explore the um, rather unseemly aspect of her politics for Freedom Leaf publication. And there has been a tremendous outcry, this big pile on against me in the comments section from her supporters, as you might imagine. Now, uh, just to get the superficially good stuff out of the way, Gabbard is a co-sponsor of the Ending Federal Marijuana Prohibition Act, which would actually deschedule cannabis, take it out of the scheduling system altogether. That's a good thing. And I will give her credit for being among the Democratic candidates, the one who is, uh, you know, the most fearless in the face of the cannabis stigma. But, uh, you know, very often when a bad person takes a good position. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing because it gives her legitimacy and, uh, you know, draws in the uninitiated who wind up actually backing her despite her really seriously sinister politics on other matters. So this all came to light during the, uh, the second Democratic candidates debate in Detroit on July 31st, where Gabbard accused Kamala Harris, now senator and formerly attorney general from California, of um, having put 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations during her uh, tenure as attorney general of California. And Gabbard's fans responded gleefully with the hashtag Kamala Harris destroyed. But they should have curbed their enthusiasm because a fact check by the San Jose Mercury News called this a highly misleading statistic, pointing out that the attorney general's office does not directly prosecute the vast majority of drug cases in the state of California. That's up to the individual district attorneys in each county 
And it's wrong to say that Harris put these people in jail. And it was further revealed that Gabbard got that figure from what seems to have been an intentionally misleading article that ran in the Free Beacon, a right-wing Trump enthusiast website based in Washington, D.C. And Free Beacon even boasted after the debate that it had been the source of Gabbard's claim. And this appears not to be merely coincidental that Gabbard was relying on a right-wing and inaccurate source, but this seems actually very revealing of her politics, as um, we shall explore. Uh, Just to continue to follow the um, course of events around the July 31st debates and the Gabbard-Harris flap, After the debate, Harris uh, threw shade on Gabbard in an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, calling her out as a, quote, apologist, unquote, for Syrian dictator Bashar Assad, who has, quote, murdered the people of his country like cockroaches, end quote. And in a second follow-up interview after that, Anderson Cooper flatly asked Gabbard, do you consider him, Bashar Assad, to be a torturer and murderer? And she deftly dodged the question, saying, quote, that's not what this is about. <clears throat> well, that's not a yes or no, is it? That's <laughs> dodging the question. Quote, I don't defend or apologize or have anything to do with what he has done to his own people. Yet in a tweet in October 2015, after Russia intervened in Syria on behalf of the Assad regime, she did exactly that. She did support what Assad and his Russian sponsors have done to the people of Syria. She tweeted, quote, Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11 and must be defeated. Obama won't bomb them in Syria. Putin did, quote, unquote. Now, this is a very far cry from the pacifist image that Gabbard has cultivated. And it's also another serious distortion of the truth. It is echoing the Putin-Assad propaganda that the Syrian rebels are monolithically al-Qaeda, which is definitely not the case. And the Russian airstrikes, which turned the tide of the war in Assad's favor, have taken a ghastly toll in civilian casualties. All right, for starters, I want to make clear here that I have my own criticisms of Kamala Harris, and I am not here to support Kamala Harris. We'll have more to say about her later on in this podcast. But in this exchange, in the debate and its immediate aftermath, what Gabbard said about Harris, that she was responsible for putting uh, 1,500 people in jail on, on pot charges as Attorney General of California, was not true. It was a distortion of the facts. And what Harris said about Gabbard, that she's an apologist for the mass murderer Bashar Assad, is true, as shall be amply demonstrated over the course of this podcast. And, uh, you know, Gabbard's tweet consciously wimp-baiting Obama for failing to bomb Syria and upholding Putin, you know, praising Putin for, you know, having the balls to bomb Syria is extremely revealing of her politics. So, Please do not try to portray Tulsi Gabbard as an anti-war candidate. Let's just get that off the table from the get-go, all right? And uh, explore what, in fact, her politics actually are. Despite her appeal to pro-cannabis and anti-war voters, many progressives see a big element of right-wing 
xenophobia behind Gabbard's politics. I'll point out that um, last year, the Hawaii State Teachers Association endorsed Sherry Campagna, who challenged Gabbard in the Democratic primary. The teachers union cited Gabbard's stance on Syria, which has long been embarrassingly soft on the genocidal Assad. And yes, the word I used is genocidal. And after the massive bombardment of civilian populations by Assad and his backer Putin, the use of poisonous gas, and a campaign of extermination of political prisoners in Assad-controlled Syria, with possibly up to 100,000 dead, I make no apologies for using the word genocidal. When Gabbard famously met with Assad in Damascus in 2017, it was not to challenge the dictator, but to display her support. And the delegation that she was a part of was filled with regime sycophants, including adherents of the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, SSNP, which, as its name implies, is a neo-fascist formation directly inspired by Nazi Germany. The SSNP was briefly in power in Syria in the 1950s and brought ex-Nazis to help run the security apparatus in the style of Bolivia under the right-wing generals. Today, the SSNP is a sort of satellite party of Assad's equally fascistic Ba'ath Party, which continued to avail itself of Nazi talent, first brought in under the SSNP. On her Syria junket, Gabbard toured Aleppo, the city which had just months earlier been retaken by the regime from opposition forces with such savagery, including massive bombardment and massacres of non-combatants, that the United Nations called it, quote, a complete meltdown of humanity, unquote. But Gabbard said not a word about this. She only blamed the Syrian people for rising up against the dictator and portrayed their revolution as a U.S.-fomented charade. Read her press release after the trip, quote, My visit to Syria has made it abundantly clear our counterproductive regime change war does not serve America's interest, and it certainly isn't in the interest of the Syrian people. Now, I want to make clear that there is no regime change war in Syria. That's a very popular talking point, but it's completely inaccurate. U.S. intervention in Syria has been overwhelmingly aimed at fighting ISIS, not at fighting Bashar Assad. And the aid that the uh, U.S. has given various factions on the ground in Syria over the years has been overwhelmingly aimed at fighting ISIS, not at fighting Bashar Assad. And the U.S. has even explicitly instructed the rebel forces that it has armed in Syria to only use those arms to fight ISIS and not Bashar Assad as a condition of getting arms from the United States. And in fact, those rebel forces which have been, you know, armed by the United States, have been constrained from using those arms to fight Assad. That has even resulted in Assad taking territory from those same rebel forces. Okay? In all of the airstrikes which the U.S. has launched on Syria over the past um, five years now, since 2014, when ISIS seized much of northern Syria, resulting in U.S. military intervention, there have been three occasions in which the U.S. has actually bombed regime forces. 
There were a couple of token airstrikes after the two Assad regime chemical attacks in 2017 and 2018, resulting in few casualties and no civilian casualties, only military, mostly taking out warplanes and such. And there was one other instance in, I believe, 2017 when um, U.S. forces actually did bomb a, uh, a column of um, pro-regime forces out in the desert that were um, getting too close to a U.S. military outpost, which had been established along the border with Jordan. That's it. Three occasions. Three occasions over the course of the war. And meanwhile, in the uh, U.S. military campaign against ISIS, an entire city was destroyed. The bombs fell every day for months, and the entire city of Raqqa was destroyed. And this elicited practically no protest from the so-called anti-war forces in this country. And certainly elicited no protest from Tulsi Gabbard because she supports this kind of thing. That's exactly what she wimp-baited Obama for not doing. So this whole notion of a you know, counterproductive regime change war is simply a fiction. There is no regime change war in Syria except that which is being waged by the Syrian people themselves, not by the United States. The Syrian people who took up arms in, uh, in 2012 after a peaceful revolution was drowned in blood with serial massacres of peaceful protesters by Assad's security forces. That's the only regime change war which is going on in Syria. And it has largely been betrayed by the outside world, including the United States far from being fomented by any foreign power such as the United States. And Gabbard is deeply complicit in this betrayal. She has sponsored legislation that would bar any U.S. support to the Syrian opposition, not just arms, but any support at all. And not just to the armed rebels, but to the pro-democratic civil opposition as well. She also sponsored a bill that would bar the U.S. from arming groups linked to al-Qaeda or ISIS in Syria. In announcing the bill, she said, quote, if you or I gave money, weapons, or support to al-Qaeda or ISIS or other terrorist groups, we would be thrown in jail. Yet the U.S. government has been violating this law for years, quietly supporting allies and partners of al-Qaeda and ISIS and other terrorist groups with money, weapons, and intelligence support in their fight to overthrow the Syrian government, end quote. Sound good? Think again. That entire statement is based on a lie. These are not groups that the U.S. has been arming in Syria. On the contrary, these are groups that the U.S. has been bombing in Syria. The U.S. airstrikes in Syria have been overwhelmingly, again, with those three minor exceptions of near-daily bombing for years, overwhelmingly aimed at crushing ISIS and crushing the Nusra Front and its various permutations which are the, uh, you know, the Al-Qaeda franchise in Syria. So the U.S. has not been supporting these groups. On the contrary, the U.S. has been bombing these groups. This is legislation as propaganda. This is a thinly veiled attempt to portray the Syrian opposition as jihadist. Utterly, utterly dishonest. And once again, The forces on the ground, the indigenous forces on the ground in Syria that the U.S. has been backing most significantly, the Kurdish forces in the northeast of the country, 
but also sporadically over the years, some of the Arab rebels. These arms were made available to these groups with the explicit and exclusive aim of fighting ISIS and al-Qaeda. So, a complete reversal of reality. In 2016, Gabbard voted against a resolution that condemned Assad for his war crimes, yet she supported a similar one condemning ISIS, which certainly reveals a very curious double standard. The Assad regime and ISIS are equally genocidal entities. Last year, Gabbard called Idlib, the last province of Syria still controlled by the rebels, an al-Qaeda stronghold, quote-unquote, despite the fact that it was home to a patchwork of opposition groups, including secular and pro-democratic ones that have been actively resisting the extremist yahoos. And such talk, again, legitimizes the bombing of civilians. And Idlib has been savagely bombed by Assad and Putin over the past months. And tars the Syrian revolution as monolithically jihadist. So again, echoing the Assad regime's dishonest propaganda. The Tulsi 2020 website has an entire page which is dedicated to conspiracy theories about Assad not being behind the serial chemical attacks in Syria, contrary to the findings of every bona fide investigation by human rights groups. And, you know, I just find this claim to be so hilarious. Every time there has been a chemical attack in Syria, and there have been many over the years, the big three ones, which uh, are well known, were Eastern Ghouta in 2013, Khan Shikun in 2017, and Duma last year, 2018. But there have been many, many others. Every time it happens, the so-called anti-war hypocrites like Tulsi Gabbard immediately tried out these conspiracy theories about how it was, you know, it was actually done by the rebels to their own people as a provocation. Well, isn't it funny that the rebels seem to have, you know, all of this poisonous gas, an unlimited supply of poisonous gas, and yet they never use it against the regime? They only use it against their own people? If you believe this, it's because you want to. It is A, patently illogical, and B, amply refuted by every investigation which has actually been carried out by a bona fide human rights group. So, is Tulsi Gabbard a paradoxical peacenik who is enthusiastic for massive bombing of civilian populations? Does this make sense, actually? No, Gabbard is really a hawk, and she admits it. In 2016, she told West Hawaii Today newspaper, quote, when it comes to the war against terrorists, I'm a hawk. When it comes to counterproductive wars of regime change, I'm a dove. In other words, when it comes to the war that actually exists, when it comes to the U.S. bombing the city of Raqqa into rubble to try to defeat ISIS, that she supports. But when it comes to the war that doesn't exist and is merely a figment of her imagination, the so-called war of regime change, that she opposes. There she's a dove. Okay, that's really comforting. (laughs) Now, yeah, there was a, uh, you know, a counterproductive war of regime change in Iraq going on, you know, almost 20 years ago now. But I hate to tell you, Iraq is not Syria. And, you know, if you're just going to conflate those two situations, then, you know, you just haven't been paying attention because they're actually very different situations. The U.S. arbitrarily invaded Iraq in 2003. The situation in Syria began with a popular uprising by the Syrian people. 
completely different situations. Okay. So Gabbard is certainly not opposed to Trump's massive airstrikes on ISIS-held territory in Syria and Iraq, which have taken a horrific toll in civilian casualties. And there are other signs that Tulsi Gabbard is actually, despite her progressive lingo, on Team Trump. After Trump's victory in 2016, Gabbard was among those to meet with the president-elect at the Trump Tower, a schmooze which was later reported to have been arranged by Trump's ultra-right then-strategist, Steve Bannon. In the aftermath of the 2016 elections, she also dissented from Democratic calls to abolish the Electoral College and have presidents directly elected by the popular vote. She told Fox News, quote, I think it's unfortunate that too often these calls for changes come about by the side that has lost or suffered as a result of the Electoral College, end quote. Of course, we all know what side that is. So, yeah, whose side are you on, Tulsi? <clears throat> I'd really like to know. And then just this year, after the Mueller report was released, Cabard praised its failure to indict Trump for colluding with Russia as, quote, a good thing for our country, end quote. Gabbard's positions are often closer to Trump's than you might assume. In a 2014 interview, she said she felt conflicted, quote-unquote, about the use of torture. Quote, if we were in a situation where our family, our community, our state, or our country is in a place where, let's say, in an hour, a nuclear bomb or attack will go off, unless this information was found, I believe if I were the President of the United States, that I would do everything in my power to keep the American people safe, unquote an implicit endorsement of waterboarding and such. In 2015, Gabbard was among a handful of turncoat Democrats who voted for the American Security Against Foreign Enemies Act, or the SAFE Act, which would have imposed restrictions on Iraqi and Syrian asylum seekers. And for such positions, she won support from figures like Arthur Brooks, president of the ultra-conservative American Enterprise Institute, in a gushing 2015 piece in the right-wing establishment organ National Review entitled Meet the Beautiful Tough Young Democrat Who's Turning Heads by Challenging Obama's Foreign Policy. Arthur Brooks said, quote, I like her thinking a lot. She could be a very powerful new voice on the D side, end quote. She's also won praise from far more unsavory voices still. White supremacist mouthpiece David Duke plugged Gabbard on his Twitter page as standing up to the, quote, Zionist neocons and neocommies who subvert our nation and lead us into insane wars for Israel, quote unquote, and also praised Gabbard as, quote, a candidate who will actually put American first rather than Israel first, end quote. Perhaps Duke was unaware that in 2015 Gabbard spoke at a Christians United for Israel conference alongside such figures as Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum, and Mike Huckabee. And just this summer, she voted in favor of the House resolution condemning the use of BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. Okay, and uh, the next section that I'm going to be drawing facts from, (laughs) rather provocatively but accurately, entitled From Harry Krishna, to Hindu fascism? Some light may be shed on Tulsi Gabbard's strange politics by looking to her roots. She was born in American Samoa to a Samoan father and a white mother. It was her mother who was apparently a convert to Hinduism, the faith that young Tulsi chose. Upon moving to Hawaii, 
she appears to have fallen into the orbit of something called the Science of Identity Foundation, an offshoot of the fractured Harry Krishna movement centered on a charismatic leader by the name of Chris Butler. It may seem an odd leap from Harry Krishna with its hippie associations to right-wing political positions, but that appears to have been Gabbard's trajectory. For starters, a cultural conservative streak was evident early on. Gabbard is still dogged by recollections that she worked for an anti-LGBT organization run by her father and opposed a civil union bill during her time in the Hawaii state legislature. CNN has recalled that Gabbard cited her stance, quote, backing traditional marriage, end quote, during her run for the legislature in 2002. Her dad's organization, the Alliance for Traditional Marriage, even supported gay conversion therapy, quote unquote. Gabbard now says she rejects her past views on the question, but some are skeptical, noting that they seem in line with other points of her politics. The Hindu-Muslim rivalry in India, which periodically erupts into nightmarish violence, seems to have especially left a mark on Gabbard. In addition to having a soft spot for Bashar Assad, Gabbard seems similarly enamored of India's reactionary prime minister, the Hindu nationalist Narendra Modi. Now, let's take a look at a little bit of background on Modi. Back in 2002, when Modi was the chief minister or governor of Gujarat state, Mass riots broke out there, which left at least 1,000 dead, overwhelmingly Muslims who were set upon by Hindu mobs. Modi was accused of abetting the mob violence, with his police not only failing to interfere, but actively directing the attacks. Modi was eventually cleared of charges by a high-level investigation and went on to become prime minister. But under his rule in India today, there is a growing atmosphere of terror against both Muslims and secularists. Gabbard was instrumental in the 2013 defeat of a House resolution that would have called on India to improve the human rights situation of its religious minorities. Gabbard has repeatedly praised Modi, saying in a 2016 interview, after meeting with the right-wing ruler in which she gifted him a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, quote, Modi impressed me as a person who cares deeply and as a leader whose example and dedication to the people he serves should be an inspiration to elected officials everywhere, unquote. Gabbard was among the few to criticize the U.S. government's decision to deny a visa to Modi when he was under investigation for the Gujarat genocide, calling it, quote, a great blunder, unquote. Some secularists in India term Modi's official ideology of Hindutva, as Hindu fascism, seeking to impose the supremacy of the majority faith on a multicultural nation, and especially stigmatizing Muslims. Gabbard famously volunteered for a tour of duty in Iraq as a member of the Hawaii National Guard in 2004, apparently swept up in the post-9-11 surge of patriotism. We may surmise that she was disillusioned when the justification for the Iraq war, Saddam's supposed weapons of mass destruction, proved to be bogus but she maintained her embrace of the global war on terrorism. This turned her into the peculiar amalgam we see today, against what she calls wars of regime change, quote-unquote, but not against the war on terrorism, and forgiving, at the very least, if not outright enthusiastic, of dictators and strongmen who cloak their rule in opposition to militant Islam, like Assad and Modi. 
And, uh, you know, I just wrap up this piece by calling for a, uh, you know, an unflinching and very hard-nosed view of the uh, the choices that we're going to be facing in the uh, Democratic primary and then finally in the general election in 2020. While Gabbard is aggressively courting the cannabis vote, it should be noted that some of her rivals for the Democratic nomination have also laid it on the line for our favorite plant. As a Senator, Kamala Harris signed on to the Marijuana Justice Act, which also seeks to deschedule cannabis. She's also signed on to the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, which would encourage a legal cannabis industry, which would wipe out the records of those who have been previously convicted of cannabis possession. However, Harris has also been harshly criticized by progressives over her time as California Attorney General for more legitimate reasons than those which were invoked by Gabbard in the debate. For instance, her opposition to a, um, a state bill which would have required her office to investigate shootings involving police officers. Okay, so, you know, there are legitimate things to criticize in Harris. And I'll also point out that, you know, Harris is very pro-Israel in her foreign politics and her own coziness with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has also massively bombed civilian populations in Gaza, undermines her moral authority to call out Gabbard on her coziness with Assad. Acknowledged. Like I say, we're looking at some tough choices. And with the nation arguably more polarized than it has been at any time since the Civil War, this is an historically critical moment in American politics. So the 2020 election is almost certainly going to mean some tough decisions for progressives. But despite her pro-pot and peacenik image, Tulsi Gabbard is just as problematic and compromised as the competition if not a whole hell of a lot more so. That is a rant, which is uh, largely based on my piece, which appears on the website freedomleaf.com, entitled, What's the Deal with Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard? Every claim, as always, every claim that is made in this piece, and which I have um, cited in this podcast, is documented and hyperlinked. I stand behind every word that I just said. And, uh, you know, all too predictably, there's been a tremendous pile-on against me from Tulsi supporters in the comments sections, you know, accusing me over and over again of, um, you know, being a hawk and supporting intervention in Syria. And I didn't say a word in support of U.S. military intervention in Syria. Not a word! But your candidate, Tulsi Gabbard, did quite explicitly... (laughs) I mean, what are you not getting here? Quote, Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11 and must be defeated. Obama won't bomb them in Syria. Putin did, quote, unquote. So not only explicitly cheering foreign military intervention in Syria by Vladimir Putin, but like wimp baiting Obama for not following suit. (laughs) Come on. I'm the pro-war guy here? It's your candidate who is pro-war. Wake up! Once again, the war that she actually supports is the war which actually exists, the so-called, you know, global war on terrorism, the war on ISIS and al-Qaeda, the war that the U.S. is actually waging in Syria now under Trump and actually began waging under Obama in his final years. That's the war that she supports. The war which she opposes is the one that doesn't exist. (laughs) The so-called regime change war in Syria, which is a fiction. Once again, 
of all of the bombs that the U.S. has dropped on Syria, you know, day after day after day, literally for years. I mean, it started to slow down just recently because, you know, ISIS has largely been defeated as of last year. But, you know, for four solid years from 2014, when ISIS seized much of northern Syria until just last year when they were largely defeated, the U.S. was dropping bombs practically daily on Syria. Gabbard didn't oppose this. She supported it. And there were just, like I said, those three exceptions, those three small exceptions. You know, twice in response to chemical attacks, the U.S. bombed um, Assad's airfields. And once there was this skirmish out in the desert where um, Assad's forces were getting too close to a U.S. military outpost and got bombed. That's it. Three occasions with few casualties and no civilian casualties that the U.S. actually bombed Assad regime forces. Three occasions out of near daily bombing of Syria for years. And you're going to tell me that there's a regime change war in Syria? There's no regime change war in Syria. The U.S. is overwhelmingly on the side of Bashar Assad in Syria and bombing his enemies. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive because, you know, the uh, quote-unquote narrative, a word that I really hate, (laughs) you know, is overwhelmingly that there's a regime change war in Syria, but it happens not to be true. It's simply inaccurate. It is not backed up by the facts. All right. Another couple of points, you know, I've been accused of, um, well, of course, my... uh, my critics have uh, immediately resorted to Jew baiting. It's like the only quote unquote narrative that they're capable of is that, uh, you know, the regime change war in Syria, which doesn't exist, is a, um, you know, a conspiracy by, by Israel and the Zionists. And because I happen to have a Jewish last name, you know, I must support it. And that's coloring my perceptions, which, uh, and, and, you know, I'm secretly a Zionist. Well, I'm not a Zionist. I'm anti-Zionist. And I just criticize Kamala Harris for being too close to Israel and for being too close to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was also a war criminal. So wrong number, guys. Sorry. And then I'm accused of um, attacking uh, Tulsi Gabbard for her religion. And you know, I have nothing against Hinduism. I have a problem with Hindutva. I have a problem with Hindu nationalism and Hindu fascism. Okay? Just like I have nothing against Islam. But I have a great deal against Al-Qaeda and ISIS, obviously. Okay? Do you get the analogy here? Come on. You know, Mohandas Gandhi was a Hindu. But Narendra Modi is not in the tradition of Mohandas Gandhi. You know, everybody thinks that Gandhi's hunger strikes were against British rule in India. And they were not. Actually, he never um, went on a hunger strike against British rule in India because he figured, you know, the British don't care if I live or die. The British would be very happy if I starve myself to death. Gandhi's hunger strikes were against the division of India and the Hindu-Muslim violence, which was breaking out in the final period of, uh, you know, the end of British rule. And in his, his hunger strikes, he was not appealing to the conscience of, uh, you know, British colonialism. He was appealing to the conscience of the people of India and of the pro-independence forces, and opposing the Hindu-Muslim violence and opposing the, uh, you know, the, the, the division of India into two states, India and Pakistan, which was underway at that time. That is not the tradition of Narendra Modi. Narendra Modi is not in the tradition of Mohandas Gandhi. Narendra Modi is in the tradition of Natharam Godze, the assassin of Mohandas Gandhi, 
who was a right-wing Hindu nationalist who did not want to coexist with Muslims and wanted India to be divided and opposed coexistence and tolerance, which is why he assassinated Gandhi in November 1949 on the very eve of Indian independence. Okay, so these are two very distinct strains in Hinduism. You know, the Gandhi tradition and the Hindu nationalist or today, I would think it's actually evolved into Hindu fascist tradition. And Narendra Modi is in the latter. And we see this very, very clearly right now with what's happening in Kashmir. People are probably aware that, uh, you know, Kashmir was uh, back uh, upon Indian independence in 1949. Kashmir was divided. Half of it wound up on the Pakistani side and half of it wound up on the Indian side. And both India and Pakistan are uh, claiming all of it. And, you know, they've gone to war over the territory on more than one occasion. And the Muslim majority in Indian-controlled Kashmir is not very happy to be under Indian rule and would rather be independent or seek union with Pakistan. So um, as a concession to the uh, sentiments of the Muslim majority in Kashmir, the state of Kashmir, the state of Jammu and Kashmir, as it's technically called, um, has been, uh, you know, given uh, broad autonomy under the Indian constitution. And just a few days ago, Narendra Modi went ahead and unilaterally abrogated the autonomy of Jammu Kashmir. And not only that, but actually intends to dissolve it and dismantle it as a political entity altogether. And not only dissolve its special autonomous status, but to actually dissolve it as a state and turn it into a mere um, a union territory, which is, uh, you know, kind of like has fewer self-governing powers than a state. You know, like in this country, back before the Western states were incorporated into the country and actually uh, became self-governing entities, became states, they were territories. The same kind of thing, you know, more or less directly governed from the center, from the federal government. In addition to that, he actually wants to dismantle Kashmir altogether and break off the region of Ladakh, which has got a large Buddhist population, trying to pit the Buddhists and the Muslims against each other. So unilaterally abrogating the special autonomous powers of Kashmir, actually dissolving its powers as a self-governing entity altogether and turning it into a union territory rather than a state, and then actually breaking it up. And of course, this is overwhelmingly, you know, militantly opposed by the uh, Muslim majority in Kashmir, and there have been big protests. Modi has had Kashmir flooded with troops. He's cut off the internet to the region. He's even cut off landlines in the region, leaving it completely isolated from the outside world. There have already, you know, there's been street fighting with um, Modi's troops, you know, hurling tear gas at protesters and so on. This could easily escalate into another war with Pakistan, all too serious a threat that this could escalate into we get another war with Pakistan. And if that happens, there's every possibility that China is going to be drawn in. India and Pakistan are already both nuclear powers, mind you. Both have nuclear weapons. And there's every possibility that China would be drawn in as well. Because Pakistan and China are very closely allied due to their mutual rivalry with India. And China actually has a very significant military presence on the um, Pakistani side of divided Kashmir. So every possibility that China could be drawn in if it actually comes to war, heaven forbid, 
And if China is drawn in, there's every possibility that the U.S. or Russia could be drawn in on one side or the other, although it's not entirely clear how those chips would fall. So uh, there is real serious threat of global conflagration due to what Narendra Modi has just done in Kashmir. And don't expect to hear a syllable of protest about it from Narendra Modi's best friend on Capitol Hill, Tulsi Gabbard. So, you know, I'm appealing to you all, don't get taken in by Tulsi's bogus peacenik shtick, because she is not a peacenik. She's actually a war hawk in peacenik guise. She is a hippie fascist, and that is a particularly noxious combination. I would almost, almost rather be dealing with a real, out-of-the-closet, unabashed, balls-out fascist like Donald Trump than a weaselly, cynical, conniving, hippie fascist like Tulsi Gabbard, who was more insidious because she could actually fool people who have earnest, good anti-war intentions into going along with her pro-war and pro-fascist shtick. I don't know. This should not even be relevant. Who am I supporting in the Democratic horse race? Well, at this point, I mean, I'm pretty cynical about the entire affair, mind you. (laughs) But in as much as, uh, you know, I'm rooting for anybody, I guess I'm still rooting for Bernie at this point. You know, I mean, I voted for him in the in the primary last time around. I imagine I'm going to vote for him in the primary again, not with any great enthusiasm. And I'm prepared to vote for anybody who gets the Democratic nomination. In, in the interest of defeating Donald Trump. With the possible exception of Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> if heaven forbid she gets the nomination, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because, you know, Tulsi versus Trump, that doesn't strike me as, as any kind of choice at all. The Tulsi presidency rather than a Trump presidency strikes me as a lateral move at best, not as progress, and maybe even a retrogression. Because, like I say, she could actually, uh, you know, fool the anti-war crowd into going along with her pro-war and pro-fascist trip. So I don't know, you know, it's really going to be a dilemma if Tulsi gets the nomination. But I can tell you right now that I am going to fight like hell and do everything in my power to prevent that outcome, to prevent Tulsi from getting the Democratic nomination. All right. Once again, please check out my piece online at freedomleaf.com. What's the deal with Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard by yours truly, Bill Weinberg? Everything which I said, every point that I made over the course of this podcast is amply demonstrated, amply documented and hyperlinked on the Freedom Leaf website. Be in touch. Let me know what you think. This has been, once again, the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. Rant on you next time.